So I'm glad to be back. Um, it's been a little while since I've been I've been away for a couple of weeks. Um, but interesting en enough, you know, God uses Joy Christian Center um, in ways that we don't even realize. Uh, so I was in Chicago last week, and uh, my I actually went to church there with my mother-in-law, Patty's mom, uh, who's a pastor in a small town um, outside of Chicago. Great congregation, uh, but it's a good drive from where she actually lives. And so on her Sunday drive, she's got this routine where she actually listens to the sermons from Joy Christian Center on the way. Um, so I didn't realize that that was such a regular routine that she had. Um, so I got a chance to listen as well, so I kind of get two sermons. Uh, but it just lets you know, you know, through, the, through, you know through, through grace. I mean, we call it technology, you know, but God can use all the tools, um, and those messages go out beyond just the place, beyond just the time that it's given. Um, when we get to heaven, we'll realize just how God has always used us and how God continues to use us, and I think we'll be amazed. Um, and if we can just adopt some of that awareness as we walk through each and every day. Um, I think that'll open our eyes to see how God is present in ways that we may not even have realized it. And I think that's a blessing. Today's sermon, today's topic, I'll be speaking from a very familiar passage. It's Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Familiar passage because many times we've read it and we, we think of it as uh, Jesus healing the man with the withered hand. Jesus healing the man with the withered hand. I'm going to read a little bit beyond that, though, in terms of Jesus' response to that situation as well. So I'm going to cover uh, verses 9 through 21. Um, but I want us to keep in mind, and what I want to cover with this is, you know, there's a cast of characters represented in this passage that I think we can learn something from. Um, there's the man who gets healed, um, and I think that's an interesting point of contemplation. If you ever, you know, wanted to contemplate on, here, here's somebody who in their time of weakness really is a model for us in some ways. Then there's the crowds who actually follow Jesus and also get cured and healed as a response to this guy being healed. Um, we don't often think about some of the dynamics involved with that. And then there's the Pharisees who are part of this whole scene as well. Um, and these are the people who we typically think of as the bad guys. But there's something that we can learn from them as well. Um, I think we always put them in a box and sort of wall them off as sort of the evil people. Um, but I think actually there, there's quite a bit to understand about how Jesus actually deals with them. Uh, because in some ways, you know, pharisaical thinking and actions show up today. And so I think we can be mindful of, you know, there's some lessons that we can take from that as well. And at the end of it all, it comes down to the main character who is Jesus. Jesus. Um, and of course, Jesus is our model, and we can learn the most from Jesus, and we are to be like Jesus. Um, and in the end, I think it always comes down to it's all about Jesus for us. Um, and so if we can sort of progress through that, I think uh, it'll be a really interesting uh, thing to consider as we walk through our week. I think it'll be an interesting thing to consider as a, as a congregation in terms of where we are in the season as a congregation, um, and, and we'll hopefully hear from the Lord in ways that actually challenge us. So let me start with the passage, Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. It reads, he left that place, that's Jesus, and entered their synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, they being the Pharisees, asked him, is it lawful to cure on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, suppose one of you has only one sheep, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath. Will you not lay hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a human being than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. When Jesus became aware of this, he departed. Many crowds followed him, and he cured them. And he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. 
He will not wrangle or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is an interesting passage for me, and it had always been something that I've grappled with because when I think about this man with a withered hand, I think his experience runs contrary to just our very human nature in terms of most of us, if not all of us, have this instinctual sort of orientation to want to lead with our best self, to actually, what we would say, lead with our best foot, make a good first impression. I think we want to actually appear our best selves in front of other people. Um, that's something that I think we've all internalized just from living in life. But it's interesting because I think this person actually illustrates the exact opposite. And I think scripture uses this person to make a very important point that, you know, what God actually requires of us and actually puts us in position sometimes is we're not actually leading with our strengths or our best selves or the parts of us that we want to present to the world. God actually puts us in situations where it's our weakness that is actually on display. And that God actually operates through those weaknesses to actually show his power and make it evident. And that's how ministry actually happens. I think that's a challenge, though, because obviously I think it is our nature to not lead with our weaknesses. I think very few people would want to have on display, instead of their strength, their frailty, their weakness, their infirmity. That actually is a quite difficult thing that most people shy away from. So I can understand a bit I think like the rest of us can as well, when we think about different experiences in our lives where things didn't go so well, and, and instead of sort of having our strengths on display, where we're sort of, hey, I'm in my element and things feel good, where you actually have the opposite experience, where you actually have your frailty and your weaknesses on display, and how sometimes you never forget that stuff, but it's amazing what God can do with that. And I can attest to that. There's a, this, this week is my 14th anniversary, got that down. Um, in a couple days. So just in preparation for that, um, I, was, I was thinking, number one, what do I do? Um, but number two, you, just, you get to reflecting on things. You get to, if you've had significant people in your life, you, know, if, if you, you don't have to even be married for this, um, but when did you first meet them? And a lot of people will talk about you know, that was a positive experience. That was a good thing. It was love at first sight. You know, there were stars. You know, you knew this was somebody special. Um, I have a little bit different experience with this. Um, when, when I first interacted with my wife, um, before she was my wife, obviously, it, I was not, my, I did not get a chance to put my best foot forward. I was caught quite off guard, actually. And the situation was, was one which I felt like I was, I was embarrassed, I just felt the lowest of the low, and, and let me explain what I mean. So, when I first met my wife, I just moved out to California, and I didn't know anybody, so I didn't have any family out here, I had no friends, I was brand new. And so I was at a gathering or what have you, the first few days I'm here and I'm talking to this fella, we just strike up a conversation because we're both new. Um, and then there's this lady, Patty, my wife, and she, she's not a part of the conversation. She's sort of sitting off to the side. And she sort of chimes into the conversation like I was talking to her. And it caught me off guard because in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I wasn't actually really talking to you. I was talking to this person is what I said in my head. Um, but for those of you who know my wife, you know, you can't really cut her out of the conversation. She, she's just a very gregarious, talkative, extroverted type of a person. Um, and so she joined in the conversation. And I was a little caught off guard because I am not an extroverted, gregarious type of person. I'm quite introverted. Um, and so when she joined the conversation, it kind of shifted the balance a bit. I was having a one-on-one -on -one conversation, which, you know, introverts, that's kind of our thing. Now it's a three-way conversation. And, and I kind of diminished and didn't have a whole lot to say because introverts can kind of do that. Um, 
And so I kind of got less and less, and so these two people are having a conversation, and this person who I was talking with originally was from the Midwest, and so is my wife from the Midwest, so, you know, they're just, you know, chopping it up. They just had a conversation going, and here I am sort of figuring out, okay, how do I get in? If you've ever imagined sort of double dutch, you know, how do you sort of jump in here? Well, my wife mentioned, Patty at the time, <laughs> not my wife, mentioned that well, she went to college in this place called Milliken, really small town. So I overhear this in the conversation. Now, I know this, I know this college. As a matter of fact, I had just come from living in Arkansas where a good friend of mine, who I saw every day, he also graduated from that small town, from, from that small college. And so, hey, this is my opportunity. Get back in the conversation. Milliken, I know somebody who went to that school. My wife's like, nobody knows that, that school. It's a small school in the middle of nowhere. Nobody knows anybody who went, who went there. I'm like, yeah, I know a really good friend of mine. It's like I practically lived with him, went to Milliken. She's like, who is he? I blanked on his name. I blanked, completely blanked. After setting up a situation where this is a really good friend of mine, and I know him really well, and he went to your school. And for the life of me, I could not remember his name. And then I started to feel like, oh my goodness, I, she probably thinks I made this up just so that I could like talk to her. And then I started to get embarrassed. And what introverts do when they get embarrassed, they start to shrink away even more. And then I tried to just re-engage because I'm like, he looks like this, and I, then I try to describe him. And now that got weird, okay, because <laughs> now I'm just trying to describe a random person to see if my wife actually knows who this person is. And I'm trying to describe him, and my wife is being so gracious. But inside, I'm dying. I'm, I'm like sort of sinking through the floor. Anyway, that was... <laughs> At the end of that, I couldn't remember his name. That was the end of that conversation, and... It stuck with me in such a way because when, when sort of negative things happen, and so it basically for, in my mind it's like, okay, it looks like I totally made up a story in order to maybe just talk to this person. And that wasn't my intent to, to sort of make anything up. I was being real with it. I just blanked on the person's name. So in my head, I said, okay, I'm going to remember his name, obviously. <laughs> I'm going to go back and fix this. And so the next interaction that I had with Patty when I saw her next, I, I must have really seemed like a strange person because not only did I come back to address the situation out of the blue, I brought a picture of this guy <laughs> because I had a picture of him, which is kind of odd too. And I'm like, hey, remember my friend who was telling his name is da-da-da-da-da, and I sh showed her the picture, which that's an odd way to start a conversation with somebody who you don't really know, um, but she was gracious. She looked at the picture. And amazingly, amazingly, she knew him. Not only did she know him, but one of her best friends in college, that's her older brother. Which means when her best friend would come out to Arkansas to visit her older brother, I had actually met her best friend. And I actually, then we connected the dots. What started out for me as this person probably wants nothing to do with me because I'm odd and I'm coming across weird, and please understand, even though it's kind of funny now, when, when you're introverted, you do have experiences like that. I've had histories of experiences where, you know, being in public spaces and having those interactions don't go so well. And it makes me more reluctant to engage it the next time because I can sort of think, okay, well, this is not going to go well. And so I take a risk whenever I sort of engage in those ways. And because I was dealing with somebody who was actually quite gracious in the midst of sort of my ineptness, inability, frailty, weakness, just embarrassment, this person is my wife today. Something amazing actually comes out of that, and I think that's not an unusual dynamic when you look at how are relationships actually cultivated and how relationships actually, you know, developed and blossomed. Typically, you do have those places where when you come from your place of vulnerability, when you're actually at a place where people can reject you and you are feeling vulnerable, but instead of rejecting you, 
They actually embrace you. They actually lead with love and grace. They actually are responsive. Those form bonds in relationship that can never be broken. And those are not things that happen every day. They're sort of rare that those opportunities happen. Uh, but they exist, and they actually are what develop lifelong connections, friendships, marriages, such and such. And I can attest to, I've got something great today, thank God. But I think partly why it impacted me the way that it is is because I actually was in a position where I was coming from not my strengths, but actually I was feeling pretty frail. I was actually operating from a place where it's quite difficult for me. And I'm amazed at what God did with that. And I do not necessarily relish the idea of having to do that all the time still. But scripture does very explicitly state God's strength shows up in our weaknesses. And Paul, when he was actually talking with God about God, can you take away this affliction, this infirmity that I deal with? And God's response is, my grace is sufficient for you. His strength is actually made powerful in the weaknesses of Paul. And then Paul turns around and says, and therefore I can boast in my weaknesses. That's an attitude that is a challenge to adopt, especially when you understand and reflect on, think about those times when you actually had to lead from and operate out of your weaknesses. And this is the very thing that God actually calls us to do in our walk with him. So this man finds himself in a situation where he's at the synagogue. And he's come to the synagogue like anybody else would come to the synagogue to actually hear the rabbi give a word from God. The rabbi who shows up that day happens to be Jesus. And so this man, all that we know about him from the different Gospels is he's got a withered or a paralyzed hand. Not in this Gospel, but in, in a different Gospel. In Luke, it, shows, it tells us that he's, it's actually his right hand that is paralyzed or withered. And so he's got no use of it. And, you know, there are all sorts of implications that we can draw from that that I think are not too far of a stretch for us, pun intended, that this is a fellow who probably could not work as effectively as probably everybody else, especially if it's his right hand, typically the dominant hand. He probably has had to figure out how then does he sort of do life in this way where he doesn't have full capability in the same ways. Um, and he's somebody who, by nature of the condition that he's got, he's, he's sort of limited in how he navigates in thing, in, around the temple and sort of the Jewish life. He can go into the synagogue, but there's some prohibitions against who can go into which sections of the temple. So this thing actually affects this fellow. And he shows up, and the last thing probably that anybody would want to do is to have the spotlight shown on them, if they're an introvert, but even if you're an extrovert your particular infirmity or your weakness, the thing that you would want to hide and shrink back from the world, that is the very thing that's on display. And that's what's in store for this fellow on this day. So he's sitting there, and what happens is Jesus is the person who's giving the word. But in addition, we've got the Pharisees who are here. And the Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day. And they come here with a mission, and their mission is not necessarily a noble one. Their mission is one where they're actually trying to entrap Jesus, particularly around some things in terms of Jesus, in their minds, breaking the law by doing things on the Sabbath, particularly healing on the Sabbath. And so Jesus has become this threat because, of course, people are responding to Jesus, and people are following Jesus, and people are being healed by Jesus. And these Pharisees, they're sort of the people where this is our turf, and uh, what's going on here? And so they show up in order to see what's going on, but they also then realize that this Jesus guy, he's gaining quite a following. We've got to have to do something about this because he's not doing it according to our way. He's talking some other stuff here. He's doing some things in ways that we wouldn't. So they show up in order to sort of set up a situation by which they could get information to accuse him. Does he break the laws? What will he do on the Sabbath? Thus, they're there on the Sabbath to watch him. Jesus is known to bring healing. This is part of the ministry that he brings. So they see this fellow, and they're wondering, okay, if Jesus actually does anything to heal this guy, we've got him. And that's what this guy who is not coming to the synagogue for a healing, unbeknownst to him, all of this dynamic, finds himself right in the middle of it. And whether it's Jesus who calls this guy for it, or whether it's the Pharisees themselves who put the spotlight on this guy, he's got this spotlight on him around his infirmity. 
the very thing that you would not want to lead with, the very thing that might actually make you quite uncomfortable. And in this process, though, Jesus says some very interesting things. First of all, he addresses the Pharisees because he knows what they're about. He gives a talk about sheep. Well, why is he talking about sheep? We'll get to that. Then he comes back and says, well, people are much more valuable than sheep. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he says, stretch forth your hand. The fellow stretches forth his hand. His hand is restored as whole as the other one. And the Pharisees go out to figure out how they can destroy Jesus in the face of this. And it's interesting because I stop and think, if I were in this fellow's shoes, knowing my own experiences that I have had around when I feel uncomfortable, when Jesus said, stretch forth your hand, which hand would I have stretched forth? And I sometimes think about that because it's implied that you stretch forth the hand that needs healing. But I think many of us instinctually will either stretch forth the good hand, quote-unquote good hand, or respond with, oh, no, I can't stretch forth the hand. I actually have a problem, and thus block our own blessing from God. And I think we have to think about these things because this, I do think this shows up quite regularly in our lives when we think about those dynamics. We can be in situations where God is actually leading us to do something, to engage something. And I know it's not as simple as, okay, hearing the audible voice of God. You might think, yeah, well, if I actually heard God's audible voice to do it, I would do it. But a lot of times I think sort of the, 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 the cue for that is, okay, well, if you feel it's a bit uncomfortable, but you don't feel it's wrong, if you don't feel it's wrong, but it does cause you to sort of stretch out beyond your comfort zone, God is probably somewhere in that equation. That is what God is about. And so when I think about this man, I think, okay, here's somebody who, let's not overlook this, he actually has some strengths about him because instead of refusing to stretch forth the hand, instead of giving the excuse why he couldn't do it, he does it. And out of that obedience, that hand is restored. And I think there's a lot of lessons for us to ponder about this one. The man, stretching forth out of weakness, leading out of weakness, there are many places in Scripture where God actually calls us and shows us why this is an important attitude for us to be able to adopt, but it's not an easy one. It's not an easy one. The Pharisees. Now, here's an interesting group of folks where I think there is actually a lot to learn, but we often overlook the opportunities in the, in the lessons that come with watching how Jesus actually deals with the Pharisees. I think a lot of times... If you're like me, you sort of were, you've, you've grown up or sort of had fed to you uh, some very true things about the Pharisees in terms of, okay, they, they have a tendency towards legalism um, and they sort of hold the letter of the law but sort of miss the spirit of the law. Absolutely, absolutely. We can find that in Scripture and that, that's absolutely the case. But it's interesting when we actually look at it um, in terms of, okay, well, why did Jesus say what he said to them in response to their attitude? in this case? Why, would, why did he go into talking about sheep to make his point somehow of being able to heal this fellow? Now, here, here's what I think is interesting about the Pharisees. So this is a group of people who, who these are the religious leaders. They're the teachers, actually. They're the teachers in Jesus' day. And they sort of arose during sort of the intertestamental period. So between the Old Testament and the New Testament, these rabbis sort of came to prominence. And they were really about following God's word. They, they did start out as the good guys. Over time, they rose to prominence and power. And because of that power piece, you've heard that, that saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely. They had quite a bit of power. And so many of the people who they attracted, who were Pharisees, they were about the power piece. And so when Jesus actually shows up on the scene, and Jesus is talking about God's word, but not talking about God's word in a way that the Pharisees are and actually challenging that in some ways. Now Jesus is on the turf of the Pharisees, and that's a challenge to their power, especially as they see people following Jesus. So that creates this interesting dynamic. And so 
the Pharisees are an interesting group in this way because I, I would put forward this, and it's maybe a little bit different in terms of thinking about them than maybe you have thought about them before. We typically think that they are rigid, hyper-conservative people who, to a fault, let the law block what needs to actually happen. And I think some of that is absolutely true. But if you go back to Jesus' actual day, we actually have found things like the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we understand a little bit more about who are the people in the communities actually operating in that day, in Jesus' time. And we realize that there's mainly three main groups of people or communities in that time that actually are vying for power. So the Pharisees did have power, but they didn't have absolute power. There were the Sanhedrin or the Sadducees, these were a group of people who I would just describe it this way. Very liberal, upper class, upper elite folks who basically controlled things through politics. Extremely liberal. Hellenized, meaning they, they sort of adopt the culture of the Greeks and the Romans and they mix it with the culture of the Jews and they sort of make sure that they have powers because the Romans are actually in authority, so if they can sort of appease the Romans by making sure that they've adopted and educate their children in that culture, then they stay in power. And so you've got that group that exists. And you've got the Pharisees, people who are about following God's law, um, and that's an important thing to do, and they take the law very seriously, and then they build up all these other scriptures to help them to keep the law, but it sort of gets in the way of actually following the law because they put so much stuff on it, so it sort of fouls it up. But then you've got this third group, and this third group are called the Essenes. The Essenes are probably a group that not too many people have heard of, but... This was actually the ultra-conservative group. The Pharisees were actually quite liberal in comparison to the Essenes. When you think of the Essenes, think of John the Baptist. More than likely, this John the Baptist was a part of this community. And this was a community that formed in response to there's too much liberalism going on amongst the Pharisees, even. Definitely amongst the Sadducees. And so this is a group of people who a lot of them would move out of the city and sort of establish their own communities. They are really about how do you follow strictly the law? And they, how do they apply this to daily life and they live this thing? And it's interesting because that is actually likely the battle that's going on with the Pharisees because they're up against these Essenes. What Jesus is referring to when he's talking about sheep, he's actually referring to this is how the Essenes would tend to operate, which the Pharisees would think that's actually ridiculous. Here, here's an example, and this is, this is from what we know based on the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are the, the writings of the Essenes, which we, we've more recently found in the 1940s, which is just interesting because now it's available. And I always say, if, if, you're, a, if you're a sort of a student of, of Israel and, and of the Old Testament, they've got so many good things that sort of help shed light on things that we, that we can actually access now. Um, it's great to stay in the learning mode. But one of the things that, that is written in how they actually applied God's principles, the Essenes, this ultra-conservative group, they would have a saying, they would have a prohibition against doing anything on the Sabbath. They were strict Sabbath observers. So strict that one of their writings says that if you have an animal, a sheep, that is pregnant, and that sheep goes into labor, but it happens to be on the Sabbath. Typically, what people would do is they would help deliver that animal to safety. The Essenes said, you can't do that. It's on the Sabbath. And because they're such strict followers of the Sabbath, they actually would lose some of their animals in that way, because obviously, if the animal goes into labor on the Sabbath, then you don't deliver it, and that animal could actually die, and you can lose what you have. And so... Their concern, though, was, it was not that they were trying to be cruel to animals, though. Please hear that. It's really more, they're really concerned that anybody would be working on the Sabbath in such a way where they would be increasing their wealth. So they were very sensitive to how do we actually make sure that we are keeping the Sabbath in a way where nobody gets tripped up and get pulled in, gets pulled into working in a way where they expand their own wealth, which that's what the animals actually represented. But they erred on the side of, yeah, but animals die when that happens. And the Pharisees thought that was ridiculous. Rightly so. Because it's almost like the Pharisees, who are not quite as extreme, did grasp something about God's law. 
And one of the things that I think the Pharisees did actually grasp about it is, well, you know, the Sabbath is actually meant to be life-affirming. It's actually meant to give you freedom and a rest from the toils of the week and every day, and it's actually supposed to be something that is life-affirming. They, they, they grasped something about that. Thus, they didn't agree with things that the Essenes would say. So when Jesus is actually phrasing the question to them, suppose one of you has only one sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of course they would. As a matter of fact, what the Essenes actually have in their writings is, if your animal falls into a pit or a ditch, he shall not lift it out if it is on the Sabbath. That is the prohibition that the Essenes actually practice. We actually have that documentation. The Pharisees, of course, would say, no, the Sabbath is not to be restrictive in that way where you actually are now losing life. It's actually meant to be life-affirming. Of course, get the animal out of the pit. So Jesus is only asking a rhetorical question. And in some ways, Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? I actually agree with how you're sort of grasping parts of the law. Jesus' issue, though, typically is, but then you don't actually apply it consistently. You don't take it to its logical conclusion. If the Sabbath is about life and life affirmation, and you can actually then pull a sheep out of a pit, but yet you have a problem with me actually healing a human being. This is Jesus' point. Jesus makes a similar point in John, also dealing with the Pharisees around the similar issue because he heals someone on the Sabbath, and so they're out to actually entrap him and get him arrested. In John chapter 21, He's interacting with the Pharisees again. They're actually trying to trap him because he actually healed somebody on the Sabbath once again. And he says, Jesus answered them, I performed one work, and all of you are astonished. Moses gave you circumcision. It is, of course, not from Moses, but from the patriarchs. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath in order that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I healed a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Again, here's another example of how Jesus actually deals with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are very unusual. Jesus' issue with them is typically you don't apply God's word in a consistent manner. You, you apply it in ways that work for you, but when it comes to Jesus' activities, then they stop short and they fall short. When it came to circumcision, the Jews understood and the, the, the Pharisees understood that when somebody is circumcised, it's sort of this ceremonial but also this sort of spiritual implication that the person is now made whole. They're sort of brought into relationship with God. That's what circumcision actually represented. And they understood the importance of, well, well don't let the Sabbath prevent that from happening. The Sabbath is about life affirmation. It is about life. It, it's in that direction. And so they grasped a part of that, and so by no means would they let the Sabbath prevent that. They would circumcise people on the Sabbath. And so Jesus then comes and says, okay, well, you've got that part, so why then do you have a problem if not only we're talking about spiritually people being made whole, but now I also make him whole physically. I give him the whole package. You have a problem with that. And so he's always taking what they grasp and what they sort of do but where they fall short, and he's calling them out on that inconsistency. Now, if it was just a matter of theological application, then they would learn something. But clearly, I think what the issue is, is it doesn't matter about the theology. It's actually Jesus is threatening their power base. And that is actually why their response is not, oh, thank you for telling me. Now I can learn, which is probably the better attitude. The response is, okay, now we got to kill this one because we cannot foul him up. We cannot catch him. The people are actually hearing this. And he's actually been presenting himself as more the authority than even we are on our own turf. And that's what sets the stage for everything that plays out between the Pharisees and Jesus. Then we have the crowds. And the crowds, even though there's not a lot said about the crowds, but I think there's one thing that, that speaks to me about them. They follow Jesus. And it says that Jesus cured all of them. That tells you something about, at least that tells me something about the crowd in terms of there was a need that this crowd had. 
And when I put it together with this man who was brave enough to, out of his weakness and his, his, his infirmity, be courageous enough to obey God in that moment, whether or not this was his testimony by his very words or whether or not it was his testimony because he actually just obeyed God and people heard about it, people saw that, people recognized that, and people then responded by saying, hey, if this is available for him, then maybe this is available for me as well. And it's interesting when we think about just how relationships work, because here's the other part about being able to be strong enough to lead from your weaknesses. I'm a therapist by profession, and you know, I don't usually get people coming in to do therapy who are saying everything's fine and wonderful. That's, that's not why people come in. People come into therapy when they get to the point where they say, you know what, actually there are some issues and I actually need to address this. And it's funny because I, I was talking with our pastor um, and he asked me a question um, about, hey Rick, you know, you, you've gone to seminary, you know, a lot of your friends are pastors and, you know, you ever thought about it? I'm like, you know, the more I think about it, here's my actual reaction. And this is where I am today. It, just, it was an interesting reflection point for me. I'm like, no, not really. Um, what I'm accustomed to is, because I've been doing therapy, I'm actually accustomed to people wanting to get better. But my experiences in the church, typically, are people got issues, but they ain't trying to necessarily fix those issues. And there's a stark difference there. And I am not casting aspersions upon the church. I'm saying it is quite difficult to get to the place where we actually lead from our weaknesses. That is not something that is easily done. So it's almost easier for us to sort of put on the face or, or sort of lead with our best self and leave a significant part of us that really needs to be on the, on the front burner in engagement somewhere on the back shelf. And then, you know, people come in to visit the churches um, and what they see and what they experience is you know, the facade. But typically when people come to church, and unless it's Mother's Day or Easter, <laughs> they usually are coming because God has drawn them in some way, either through someone or God has put something in their life which causes them to actually respond to God. And when they come in and they actually experience the people of God in, the, in this environment, if we are able to be real, if we're able to be gritty, as I would hear someone say, I think that is something that actually encourages what needs to happen. And when I look at this man who got healed, because he was willing to lead from that infirmity and be real with it and not hold that back, when you lead with openness and vulnerability, it actually produces openness and vulnerability in others. And what you get is other people being able to respond and come forward with their openness and vulnerability because the need is there. But we look for, is it safe enough for us to actually be open with it? Will, can, when, we be, when we're open with it, will people actually respond to us in a way that doesn't cause us to regret it? And I think we see all these dynamics happening in just this small passage. And so the crowds, I think, are a testament and a testimony, not just to Jesus' ability to heal, but also to God's strength and power showing up in somebody, this man who was infirmed, showing up through his weakness, and that's the testimony of this guy. That's actually the testimony of this guy as well. Finally, we come to Jesus, though, and it all comes down to Jesus. If there's anybody who we learn anything from, if there's anybody who we are to emulate, obviously it's Jesus Christ. And what's interesting or different about how Jesus responds to this whole thing is when Jesus is actually involved in ministry and going about the business of, of establishing God's kingdom, which we are to be about that business, he gives us sort of in this passage, there's sort of two responses that you can encounter. You can encounter, as a result of the move of God, people who are going to then recognize, hey, I have a need, and I can actually come open, gritty, and actually engage that and have God actually work. And you can have people who actually shut it off like the Pharisees and have a very different response and you face hostility. And Jesus gives us a template on how to navigate both. 
He gives a template on how to navigate both in this time that we're in. But let me pause for a moment with this because I think something does need to be said because if anybody is sort of listening and, and thinking justification that, you know what, I must really be godly because people definitely are frustrated with me. Let me just pause right there because sometimes people are frustrated with us not because of the God in us. Sometimes people are frustrated because we're unique. Can I just say it that way? Unique. Part of the work that I do gives me a little bit of a vantage point on this as well. Um, in terms of, uh, you know that I do travel quite a bit to other countries. And it's interesting because, you know, you've got people who are missionaries. You've got people who really are called of God to go other places. Um, you know, I think God puts me in those situations as well. But I think it's really, really interesting how, well, God, you're taking an introvert and you're putting them in all these other places. But you know what, God, you meet me halfway because, you know what, typically I'm sort of in one-on-one -on -one conversations. That's a little bit more my thing. Hey, I can manage that a bit. And if I have to sort of be in front of a group, it's not a dialogue. I just get to talk. You know, it's more of a monologue, and I can pull that off. So God works with me, but, you know, God is always still saying, get out of the boat, Rick, get out of the boat, Rick, sort of pressing me forward in new ways. And that, that's a bit of a challenge for me, but I get to meet some interesting people along the way as well because I've sort of found that, you know what, God is actually doing some amazing work in the kingdom. But then we've got some people out there where it's like, you know what, I think that you're out here because you don't actually fit at home. And when you don't fit at home, that can be a difficult thing to grapple with. And so some people put themselves in other environments because they're not going to fit there either. But you know what? There's a reason why they don't fit there because I'm not from here. This is not my culture. So it sort of makes sense why they may not fit. And people can sort of look at them as a little bit of a unique person. And it works. But some of us are sort of unique in ways where it's like, you know, but I think God is actually trying to address some of that because sometimes that can be the issue that God is trying to address. And so in all that I'm saying, I, I definitely did, don't want anybody to sort of take it in as justification to continue to be problematic. Okay? When people are responding to us in ways that are marked by frustration and anger, I do think we have to stop back and maybe see, okay, we want to make sure that if that is the case, it really is because we are speaking truth and trying to operate out of the ministry that God has given us, and it's not of some idiosyncrasy that we actually bring or some issue that we actually have to address. I think it's also, and this is just my opinion, why sometimes it is easier to not get into relationship. Because I think what Jesus is actually doing in all of this is he's saying, look, in your relationship with people who have weaknesses, because we all do, we have to respond with grace. In your relationship with people who actually come against you, there may be times where you sort of speak, but a lot of times what Jesus is showing us is you actually step back. Because when the Pharisees responded with, okay, we have to destroy him, he departed. And there are many places in Scripture where it says, once Jesus is aware that here's what people are thinking and it's negative towards him, they're trying to entrap him, he retreats, he withdraws. And we may think, well, wait a minute, that's not consistent with what we want. I remember when I was in college, and I don't know if you have had this experience either, but, you know, I went to quite a, a left-leaning college, and it was quite difficult then to have conversations that involved God at all if you really were somebody who believed in God, uh, because people just had a sort of valence against that. And after about three years there, before I graduated, I was graduating four years, but about three years in, I was pretty upset. And, and what I, my, my dream was, Jesus, I want you to come back, and when you come back, you need to come to this campus, and you need to do a miracle in the middle of campus so all these professors and all these students can see once and for all, Jesus is Lord. And that was my attitude. That really was my attitude. And when you read scripture, that is nothing like what Jesus actually is instructing us to do. Jesus is actually saying, hey, when people come against you, you figure out how you actually don't inflame the issue, but you continue with the ministry. 
And so we find that when John the Baptist was actually arrested, and then that means that people were actually then on the hunt for Jesus. Jesus actually withdrew and went to Galilee, and that's where he actually started his ministry. The ministry actually started out of that. We read here when the Pharisees conspired to kill him, he actually withdrew and departed from there, but yet the crowds followed him, and he cured them all. The ministry continued. And so somehow, even though Jesus is saying and commanding people, hey, don't broadcast who I am, here's how the kingdom of God is actually growing. Jesus is responding to challenge by not inflaming it, stepping back, but yet ministry is still continuing, and the word is spreading. And we might think, well, and why would Jesus command people to not tell him, tell folks about him? That, that's an interesting one. Wouldn't you want news to spread abroad? Well, it actually tells us then, and this is something about the character of Jesus that I think is really important to, to try to model and emulate because I think Jesus does call us to this. It says, I just lost my page in Matthews. It says Matthew 12, give me a little bit. He ordered them to not make him known. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not wrangle or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he won't break. A, a smoldering wick he will not extinguish until he brings justice to victory. This is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah. And in Matthew, Matthew quotes a lot of different pieces of Isaiah and different scriptures, but this is the longest quote in Matthew from any other part of the Old Testament for, for a really good reason. Jesus has a mission, and the mission that Jesus has is to bring justice. When we think about folks who are being healed and cured by Jesus, these are folks who are dealing with some infirmity, some ailment, and in the society in which they live, it's not hard to imagine then the implications of what that would mean. It means they're probably at a disadvantage. Now, unless people are actually practicing the law as it was intended, meaning when you've got people who are not able to work, there are ways where they can actually glean because you make provision for that, and so they can engage this way. When things are working well by the law, then things that people are taken care of. But the issue is the Pharisees did not apply the law in the way that they should have. And so you have these situations where there is oppression. There's things that have to be addressed because people who are more vulnerable at a disadvantage. That is a dominant theme in Isaiah in terms of God's concern about Judah. It's the oppression that is happening there. And so when Isaiah is talking about God sends his servant in order to bring justice, it's because justice needs to be there because of the way that things have existed between people where the vulnerable are actually being taken advantage of. This is a dominant theme that, that the prophets always speak about. And we're getting that then brought up here in Matthew. Because Jesus' mission is to then bring that justice to the people who would be the most vulnerable. And that then tells us something about the crowd as well and what's going on in terms of Jesus healing with them. So Jesus is doing, about doing the work that God has called him to do. This is the work that we're called to do as well. I would say it is our role to also then be operating to bring justice as well. We've got this connection with God. God is absolutely concerned with that. But God is also concerned with how we're operating with respect to each other. It's an interesting passage or an interesting uh, saying that I've, I ran across that I think is really true, and it was spoken way before I was born, um, and I'm going to butcher this fellow's name, W.A. Visser Tuft. I don't know how to say it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure he's from South Africa. <laughs> okay, but he said in addressing sort of the World Council of Churches in 1968, a Christianity which has lost its vertical dimension has lost its salt and is not only insipid in itself but useless for the world. He's saying we've got to be about what God wants us to be about and that connection with God is vital. He said, but a Christianity which would use the vertical preoccupation as a means to escape from its responsibility for and in the common life of man or humanity is a denial of the incarnation. It's a denial of God's love for the world manifested in Christ. That's the very thing that the Pharisees tended to do. This is the very thing that Jesus was actually addressing in terms of bringing the justice. It was the concern that you've got vulnerable folks, and somehow when the law is not being lived out, they're actually being taken advantage of. Jesus speaks of widows and orphans. 
people who are defenseless and people who are vulnerable. And so this is the mandate and the mission that we carry, but Jesus does it in a way that is not confrontive. Jesus does it in a way that is the most inobtrusive way possible. When it's talking about he will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick, it's saying basically Jesus is not actually getting out in the streets going through political avenues in order to proclaim and make justice happen. He's not going through the political means. He's not out on the street corner proclaiming things. He's actually navigating through relationships and in the face of the opposition, he actually withdraws from that in order to not inflame that and yet ministry is still continuing to happen because the draw of God is bringing people. It's the most inobtrusive way that is the model that Jesus actually gives us. But that is actually something that we don't often think about. I think a lot of times we think, okay, well, we can do it this way, and there's nothing wrong with utilizing the tools that we have in order to address injustice. But the model that Jesus gives us is, okay, there's a way to actually deal with opposition. Because there will come a time when it is no longer retreat, but when Jesus actually shows up in full measure to make everything right, then that'll be a different day. But until then, we actually have to then navigate, how do we actually stay and navigate in the face of all these dynamics and still stay in relationship in such a way where ministry is happening, people are responding out of their need, we're able to be responsive to that need, and we can actually see the kingdom of God established. And these are really important blueprints, I think, for us today. If we have sort of one or, or two um, takeaways or examples to, to hold on to as we go into our week around any of this, it caused me to think about, okay, there have been times in which, I don't know if you've had this happen to you, you hear something said, whether on the news or whether by somebody who you know, and it just is not right. Just is not right. It's like, no, nah, God is not in that one. And for me, typically, I have used that to sort of be my fuel to dig into the word. And that's not a bad thing, but my fuel typically is, and so the next time I see this person, I'm going to give it to them. <laughs> and that is not what Jesus is actually telling us. That, that is actually not what Jesus is telling us to do. And my point is, even in our attempts to follow Christ, we have to be careful because I think we can have a tendency to actually want to engage in ways where if people are antagonistic, it is going to bring antagonism out. We respond that way. Jesus is actually saying, no, if you actually lead with openness and vulnerability, he's showing us this way. If you actually lead with gentleness, mercy, that actually is going to what, that's what's going to accomplish God's will actually going forward. It's going to happen through relationship. And so I bring all that back to say this. I have been challenged in some ways, even within our congregation, um, because when I look back over the past year, year and a half, I found that, okay, God, I think for me, being the person that I am and sort of knowing my style, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm more of an introverted type of person, and you've, you've sort of kicked me out of the boat a little bit in terms of, okay, so get involved in this ministry and, you know, go down to Mexico. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't speak Spanish, but, hey, go anyway. All right. And God has been faithful. God is really blessed. But, but here's where I feel like God is still saying, get out of the boat. We've got folks in our congregation who, you know, because of ailment, injury, or what have you, they can't be with us all the time. And it is something a little bit different to actually then pay a visit and sit down with somebody in a one-on-one -on -one relationship. And for some of us, that is, that, that's actually the hard thing. It's, it's, it's kind of easier to maybe get up here and sort of speak than to actually show up or, or extend an invite and actually sit down in a relationship with someone, but the relationship, that's where things actually happen. And I know that, I mean, I don't even have to name names, I'm looking down, I know that there are people here who actually do that. And it's not broadcast, but 
I realize it sometimes. Like, oh, you know what? They're actually doing the real work. They're actually doing the real work. And I think God has called us to that. And I even sort of hold it in this way. I did not know our founding pastor. I knew our previous pastor. And, and it's a blessing to have our current pastor. You know, but as I listen to even our leadership team talk about, you know, what, 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 what is it about Joy Christian Center's history that we sort of hold on to? What I hear is, you know, when it comes to the real work of relationship, that is our foundation. And they've had that experience with their founding pastor. And when it comes to the work of ministry, you know, here's how we've seen it in our previous pastor. And now we've got our current pastor, and, and he's trying to help us get to a place where it's like, okay, the ministry that you've had modeled for you, engage that. You know, go forward with it. You guys are the ones who God is actually working through. Never lose sight of that. And he's empowering us to do that. And it's interesting how God is actually moving in this congregation. But I get so much out of just listening to the stories, listening to one-on-one -on -one conversations with folks. And I'm like, God, why do I find it so difficult to actually sit down in one-on-one -on -one conversation with people when so much comes out of it? Well, it's because that's the thing that's just hardest for me to do, and maybe that's the thing that God is actually calling me to. I would encourage us all to consider those things that maybe might not be your strong suit. I'm not saying you've got to major in it, meaning you don't have to put all your effort and throw everything away and do that thing. But I would definitely say be sensitive to how God may be sort of coaxing us to get out of the boat, step out of our comfort zones a bit in ways that might be unexpected because this man and how he was healed is a great illustration in terms of what it shows up across Scripture in terms of in our weaknesses, God really shows up. And when God really shows up, it's not just for our own healing and development. That actually then becomes a draw to other folks who then can see, hey, if they can lead with weaknesses and be real, then we can too. And if you wanted to have somebody to actually have the type of experience that they need to have when they actually come into our congregation, then we've got to be a congregation that's willing to sort of lead and engage from the gritty areas and not just from the places where we're most comfortable. And that's a challenge to me. That's a challenge to me. And I think you're my teachers. I think you are my teachers. So with that, um, believe it or not, my daughter was back there at the door clicking her watch. Um, <laughs> right on, Rochelle. So with that, if we can sort of close in prayer, um, I'd ask us to remember those of us who, who aren't here, and, and they're not here because they're actually infirm, they're actually dealing with things they cannot get here. Um, and I don't know what it's like, you know, everybody's situation is, is a bit different um, because I'm not suggesting that, you know, we as a church, you know, show up and break down people's door in mass. You know, everybody's sort of got their own way. Um, but, you know, are we willing to be sensitive to, you know, hey, how is God sort of instructing us to operate together? Um, in ways where people are edified and, and God's word accomplishes what it needs to accomplish uh, within our congregation. So let us look to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that your word is good, Father. Lord, that you, you place it in our hearts, Lord, not just on the page, Lord. And you give us the opportunity to live out all the things that you've made possible through Jesus Christ. Lord, that you give us empowerment to actually walk the walk that you've called us to. Lord, that we're no longer a, sin, uh, a slave to sin. Lord, but we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. But Lord, help us to lean into you, Father, even with our weaknesses, especially with our weaknesses. Because you've told us, Lord, that that's where your strength is made manifest. That's where the power will be, will be shown. Lord, as you place different folks on our hearts and minds over the week, Lord, we ask that we can continue to not just uh, lift them up in prayer, but seek you in terms of what would you actually have us to do? How would you actually have us to engage in ways? I pray that we can at least all sort of step out of the boat in some small way over the next week, Lord, and come back with a testimony in terms of how you've shown up when we've been willing to stretch forth out of our weak hands. Lord, we also thank you for the mothers that we want to honor. 
We thank you for all that you um, have provided us through the people who you've placed in our lives, Lord. Lord, prayers have been uttered for us that we don't even know. We'll find out one day just how you've responded to those. As we go forward, Lord, we also pray that we keep in mind, Lord, that those who you've called us to may be watching. Those that you've called us to may be the very people who are closest to us and we may be unaware. They've yet to find it safe enough to lead with weaknesses to reveal what they're actually struggling with or dealing with. But Lord, help us to not just be good listeners, but Lord, help us to be models in terms of help us to lead with openness around what we actually struggle with, that we take it to you, Lord, and that you're faithful. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.